Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection to the world around them show up in their relationship to the outdoors. Today I chat to Mike Spencer-Bound, who is a nomad, world traveler, and someone who just embodies adventure. His book, which came in 2017, is called The World's Most Traveled Man. And I'm not going to lie, when I first read the title, I was a little judgmental. I envisioned someone jet-setting around the world, collecting stamps without actually immersing themselves in the culture. But in reading his book and recording this episode, I now know Mike wasn't jet-setting. He he actually traveled to all 195 countries while also getting off the beaten track and immersing himself in culture. Far too often when traveling, you come across people who will introduce themselves with statistics like how many countries they've visited or how many continents they have stepped foot on. And I feel that's taking away from the magic that you can actually experience from, from travel. It's difficult to quantify travel without losing its magic. That magic is the way your senses perk up when you are somewhere that is truly foreign. It's the sense of humanity that you feel when being invited to dinner by a stranger in a remote village. Or the magic of connecting with a fellow traveler who feels like a long-lost brother or sister. And Mike absolutely gets this, and he's collected a wealth of experience in his two to three decades that he's been on the road, exploring some of the most remote and off-the-beaten-path places on Earth. But Mike's World Travels wasn't actually the reason I reached out to him, to have him on Mountain Whispers. It was actually his bushcraft and wilderness survival experience, specifically the 86 days that he spent in the Valhalla range of the Kudanese Mountains in BC, hunting and foraging to find his sustenance for an entire summer. He recounts this in his book, and specifically articulates the transformation of consciousness that occurs when you leave society and return to the wilderness. It very much maps to the characteristics that are experienced in deep states of flow. If you use the STIR acronym of selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness, he speaks to the shifts in all of these elements when he's in the wilderness. He talks about the narrative self dissolving, the mental chatter within his mind dissipating, falling into a deep state of presence. For days, weeks on end, he talks about how his perception of time warps and waking and dream states seem to merge together. He talks about tapping into a deep state of intuition, where he's able to say fix a broken fishing rod without being fully conscious of where the knowledge was coming from. Of the richness of his heightened state of attention being able to recognize animals in the area based only on the sound that comes from them brushing against the fauna, and the heightened state of being around being able to read someone's facial expression on his return to civilization. It's so fascinating. 
Trusting and honing your intuition comes up a lot in our conversation. Mike talks about how writing stuff down can actually inhibit intuition. How paying attention to facial expressions while being ripped off in a foreign market can teach you the same skills that you'd learn in an MBA. Or how being able to recognize uh, when someone acting in a friendly manner is actually planning to rob you. Risk comes up a lot in our talk too. We talk about street smarts and situational awareness and how traveling through Iraq during the war was in many ways less risky than someone with very unhealthy habits that are, unco- that are common in, in our modern sedentary sitting modern society. And then that's not to mention other wild stories that come up too. Like friends trying to smuggle ancient mummies back into Canada, things like that. It was really such a fun conversation to to have. I know you're going to enjoy it. There's a lot of of great nuggets in there. Here is Mike Spencer Bow. So I'm with Mike Spencer Bow. Mike, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Glad to be here. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you want to tell the audience where you, you are right now? I'm in Moldova now. Mm-hmm. And I'm soon going to go back into Ukraine to uh, check out on some friends. I've mm-hmm. got a uh, buddy from Donetsk who opened a bar at the wrong time. So he, he opened the bar and just had it open, like in downtown Kiev, right when the war started. So oh. I'm going to go see how he's doing. Well, what does entry into Ukraine look like at the moment? Well, pretty easy for me because I've got a Ukrainian residence card. So, you know, I would just go to the border and show that. And I think they're letting anyone in, actually. I even got an email from uh, Tourism Ukraine saying, you know, come and do tours of Ukraine. They're trying to make sure tourists still come. I'm not sure if anyone would be up for that. But uh, it should be easy to get into. Now, of course, you can't fly within there. And there might be some missile strikes on infrastructure. But I've I've got some Swedish friends who are still, you know, some of them uh, stayed in Kiev long term like through the the course of the battle and i have one american friend who's been he was there he stayed in uh in his district even when the russian army was sending you know armored personnel carriers right into the right into the place like in front of his apartment shooting wow he stayed there he's a former american submarine Mm -hmm. and you've been traveling a lot of your life i I take it more than half of your life now right or three yeah probably probably most of it yeah probably 60 Mm -hmm. percent of it because i did 23 years that was pretty much nonstop, and then i've been doing a little bit slower for the past i guess it's seven eight or nine Mm -hmm. maybe something like that maybe it's eight it's hard to say (laughs) it's just all the time yeah i've been traveling pretty much nonstop since i was 20 and i'm probably like 53 or 54 now and so. and something we were talking about before you before we hit record was that now most of the places you travel, it's traveling through the eye of how it's changed with time. Do, do you want to speak a little bit more about how Moldova, Moldova has changed? Yeah, so uh, for Moldova, when I was first here, it was extremely Soviet. And I was telling you about how the, uh, the girl who snapped me into the country was trying to give me her phone number and saying, let's go out on a date afterward. She couldn't believe that I was actually visiting Moldova. But, but yeah, the people were eating the chestnuts back then. So you'd have the chestnut trees, which are, you know, there's still chestnut trees lining the, the uh, streets. But back then they were um, taking the chestnuts and they were going to 
turn them into food and consume them essentially. And now they just kind of rot on the sidewalk or they get swept away. So you can see they've become a little bit uh, richer. You don't really have to eat chestnuts anymore. But that was at the time of the, uh, the post-Soviet collapse. And then it, uh, it improved for quite a while. And then politicians stole a billion or billions of dollars out of the bank. That was the people's money and disappeared with it. And then things went downhill for a little bit. And now it's bouncing back. You've got some Turkish money came in, coming in, building up malls, building up uh, a lot of the buildings. A lot of the derelict buildings are being renewed. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's different. It's modernizing. It's just the same with Poland. Like Poland used to feel very, very Eastern, very Soviet. And now it's almost like what Germany used to feel like in the 90s. So they're maybe 30 years behind. And so it's, it's interesting. It's the same way I like to watch uh, the seasons changing in, uh, when I go out into nature. I like to watch different kinds of flowers coming up or different insects or different animals having activities like when the squirrels are most feverishly gathering. And, but for the development of cities and development of countries, I watch it as well. And not all of them moving forward. Some of them stay the same. But, but in general, they are. Yeah, I, I uh, appreciate the, the equanimity in um, seeing, I guess, modernization um, similar to, as a natural process, similar to the seasons. It's, it's funny, as you were saying that, I, I think of um, uh, a lot of my friends, we, we talk about some of the, uh, what travel would have been like 30 years ago um, in mm-hmm. w- when things were were not, I guess, as, as touristy now. I know there's there's still corners of the world where you can experience it like that um but it's almost like there's a um yeah a, a feeling that the the it's hard to have the equanimity of of, of modernization as a natural season mm-hmm. it's, it's it feels true. like some magic is being lost yeah well the travel is completely different than what it was, used to be and it's almost amazingly easy it used to be so hard to to do various things like like for instance when i was trying to get my Afghanistan visa in Uzbekistan a long time ago. I, I ended up, like, I came three days early to the city just to try to find out where the embassy might be. Because, you know, the information I had, of course, I'd arrive there and there'd be nothing there. And I tried to talk to some of the oldest people I could find because they might remember. And they go, oh, yeah, this is where the embassy used to be years and years ago. It moved somewhere, don't know where. And then I try to find younger people and see if they might know. And so I'm trying to like speak in like bad, broken Russian and trying to figure things out. And it just took ages. So yeah, it could be three days just to find the embassy. It could be tucked away down some corner. There's just no information about anything available. And for getting into taxis, it was always an argument or they're trying to rip you off or you can't communicate with them. It was really, really tough. And uh, in a way it made it fun, but, but also, you know, it was different in the sense where you're n- never connected to people. Like there's sometimes like six months would pass where I hadn't called anyone. Just no contact from home. Like you're really, when you were out there, you felt like you're in another world. You know, really, you had no in- information or contact. Like in the, the Congo, for instance, there wasn't even any internet. I think I was able to put a few words posted onto, onto the primordial version of Facebook that was prevalent back then, but it took like hours in an internet cafe just to get a few words up that actually stuck. Yeah, so, the yeah, one no- thing I, I think about is coordination with other travelers. Uh, pre-internet where the, the, you'd have to say, say meet me at uh, a specific town square on this specific day and you would wait at, at that town square if there were a couple of days delayed. Yeah. Which yeah. Is sometimes you even find someone that you're supposed to see and then you, you try to talk to people. You try to go to the usual 
like often like a book like Lonely Planet was useful more that you knew that maybe if you're in the general area where you wanted to meet friends, they might very well be taking a hotel that was listed in this book as well, or at least someone who met them might have. So it was really like there was like a traveler's grapevine that was uh, more important. Sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a different world back then, but it's so easy now. Like I just did uh, five months in Eastern Europe, and it's you know I could have almost been comatose and have like you know I didn't even bother to plan ahead. I would just arrive in a new country and you know right away get a sim and then just look up and I've got a hotel room and I'm in it and it's something that would have been a stressful multi-hour <laughs> affair normally, but uh, yeah, as it is, it's just easy peasy. Yeah, it's 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 funny. Adventure is something I I, I want to focus on. Um, but when I first, uh, as I mentioned before, um, we hit record. You, you came onto my my radar from um, the account of your uh, eighty six day uh, expedition into the the Valhalla Range. And when mm-hmm. I looked you up and, and saw your book was the world's most travel man, you you'd, you'd visited all over the world. My um, my first impression was actually. Um, that and i think you use the term do you call it spoken hub travel as as mm-hmm. uh, as distinguished i i almost wondered it was that and it, i was fascinating that and vi- you visited every country in the world while also getting off the beaten track as opposed to just ticking off different flights yeah i wasn't really interested in country counting at all or flash packing or anything like that Re- really what i wanted to do was see all the ecosystems of the world but then in, in the course of traveling, I found out that the people are also equally interesting, if not more interesting. So then I sort of added that in. And then I noticed also that in the, in the process of seeing everything interesting in terms of ecosystems, like all the major mountain ranges, all the rivers, all the bays, oceans, everything else, and also trying to see all the areas where there's interesting culture, interesting people there, that that's almost all the world anyway. And I thought, okay, I'll put that little bit of extra effort to see the two or three places that maybe. uh, you know, don't really fit those criteria, but by, by doing them, I, I could have gone to every country at least. So just like a little side goal for me. Uh-huh. Whereas you know, you have, some people are going here just trying to tick off the countries, but that's not really interesting to me. I'm not like a, you know, I was never into stamp collecting or things like that either. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it's funny because when, 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 when I meet people traveling, I, uh, if they tell me uh, the number of countries they've visited, I, I uh, yeah. immediately turn off a little bit because I, I, I think just <laughs> yeah. the, the mere, um, the just naming the goal of having X number of countries you want to visit immediately creates this pull to just stamp count, to just like tick off places uh, as opposed to, to, to truly wander and experience mm-hmm. something. Yeah, well, I I feel envious sometimes about travel if I hear someone had an especially good experience in a country. And I'm like, oh, I would have liked to have an experience like that. But uh, yeah, nor- normally, uh, yeah, just visiting the country and even just seeing the tourist sites, it's, it's not that interesting. Like, for instance, one of my Slovak friends, he went over to Mongolia and he decided that it would be worth money to, uh, to go and see the uh, white bears of the Gobi Desert. He thought he could get some photographs of it and try to sell them. So he arrived at the edge of the Gobi Desert and um, he thought, okay, how to see these, these white bears. So he talked to some nomads and they had some camels and he said he wanted to rent the camels. And they're like, no, 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 we'll, but we will sell you a couple of camels. So he bought the camels for what he thought was kind of a high price. And then he packed them up and then he went off and, you know, going through the desert, <laughs> trying to look for this bear. And the nomads said, you just die in there. You'll never find this bear. But he was quite determined. So he kept looking and looking. And the camels were annoying because they would attract biting flies. 
And sometimes they'd bring them near to trees where like biting insects would crawl up out of the sand. And once they refused to move and he had to like stab one in the rump with a, a quite small pen knife to give it enough of a jolt to get it moving, they'd absolutely refuse to walk. But eventually he did find these bears, he clicked some photos. He went back to where the, uh, oh, and in the, the course of it, he'd been jumping into caves trying to find you know, are there white bears in here? He'd like jump in. It's maybe not a recommended uh, procedure, but he'd jump in to see if there's bears to ready to take a photo. And he found no bears in the caves, but he did find one where there'd been seats carved out. And there were three mummified corpses dressed in archaic clothing sitting in these caves. And he thought, okay, interesting. And he thought, well, maybe mummies are worth money. So he strapped one to the camel. And, stuck it with her. <laughs> and then he was looking for this white bear. And eventually he found the white bear, got the photos, went back to the Mongolians and he tried to sell them the camels back to them. And they were kind of surprised to see it survive, but they were like, yeah, okay, I guess you did survive. And he said, okay, well, you buy the camels back. And they go, oh, now these are used camels. Ooh, so used, low price for this, right? So he, he lost a lot of money on the camels, but he thought he would make it back by either the mummy that he had or the, uh, or the photos of the white bear. And he found out the photos of these white bears, it's interesting, but not really worth money. So then for the, uh, the mummy, he thought he could uh, make some money from that. So first of all, he went to talk to a museum in Mongolia and they said, we're a geological museum. We're not interested in mummies. Go away. So he, so he packed the mummy into a box and he sent it back to his home in Vancouver. And he kind of forgot about that he'd even done this. And then like months later, he was sitting in his backyard of his mom's house and suddenly various branches of police came in and busted him. And his mom was saying, what did you do? What did you do? And he said, I do nothing. Like he forgot all about the mummy. And then eventually they were questioning him and they, they were questioning like for a murder investigation. And finally it, it clued into his, his mind that it was the mummy that I sent. And he tried to explain the same story as I'd explained to you. And they were saying, Oh yeah, I like the story. And they, they kept them, they kept them as a murder suspect while they sent this body. Cause you know, from, from the police point of view, there's a dead body arrives in the mail. right? And it's so well-preserved, you know, they don't know when it could have died. So uh, yeah. So they were investigating him for murder, but they didn't believe the story. But then they sent it to a university and they tested it and it came back. It was many, many hundreds of years old. So they said, okay, you're off the hook. And he said, well, I can have my mummy back. And they said, no, you can't have your mummy back. And you're lucky we don't arrest you for something. <laughs> you can't send dead bodies to the mail. Yeah, but <laughs> it's <such> a wild <laughs> story. Yeah, but I, I know so many people who have experiences like this when they go into a country. I, and so I do a, think that's, that's, that's kind of I, I see, I see a fun, I, I see a, like a clear distinction. I, I, I think travel is uh, an opportunity to uh, chase experiences like that um, or open yourself up to, to, to have experiences like that as opposed uh, to specifically ticking something off. And the moment you, I guess, have even just a, a very uh, packed agenda or you want to fit a lot in, you're, you're immediately restricting yourself from, from, from opening yourself up to, to the spontaneous. Yeah, well, I always advise people who are trying to do Europe, including my younger brother, who's just doing Europe for probably his first time. And he was listing out all the things he was going to do. And I was telling him, less, 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 less is more with this. You don't want to feel rushed. And some mm -hmm. days you just want to take, absorb the atmosphere. Because too many people, you know, arrive and they blaze around doing everything. And then at the end of it, they, they don't even lay down any memories. They're just too exhausted. Yeah, you got to take your time and try to appreciate things. Yeah, I find as I'm getting older, I'm slowing down a little bit too. Like uh, I like to stop in a place now for nine or ten days. When when I was younger, like sometimes four or five, and I'd want to move on, especially mm. if it was a smaller city. 
I, I very much want to explore how how travel has changed because I I know there's some some wild stories from when you were younger yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But but I'd love to go back to um, I guess some some of your more formative experiences. It sounds like you you had a really a, a free range upbringing. Is that correct? Yeah, I was always running around in the bush, throwing rocks and all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> throwing rocks, hunting hunting uh, birds, uh, fishing tons. And then when I was around teenage or slightly older, I used to just go out in the bush and just live for long stretches. So yeah, I did 86 days without human contact. And then a friend came and checked up on me and I did 40 more and then 40 more after that. So essentially it'd be like six month periods where it had extremely minimal human contact. That, which is, I, I think there's very few hu- humans, at least humans in the developed world who experience something like that. Did you have specific mentors in bushcraft or how did you learn the, the bushcraft expertise to be able I to I think I just picked it up just uh, because I was outside so much when I was younger, I picked up a lot of it. And mm-hmm. then a little bit of I'd learned from the locals. Like if you're tired, you can chew on rat root, which was a certain kind of plant and, you know, what plants were edible. Uh, what plants were even edible in most places, but not edible where I was. So, you know, I, I picked up a lot of that from the old timers. You know, there were, there were some like crazy hillbillies and stuff. There was one, one eyed guy who was crazy. He thought he was a wizard and he used to uh, shoot at anyone who'd approach him, but he, he lived near Salmo up in the bush. But uh, yeah, I knew, I knew a whole bunch of these guys. And I think I picked up a little bit from them. And of course, just learned from doing it, mm-hmm. especially the behavior of bears and other animals. Wow, so it's completely self-taught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you pay attention, you can figure this out. And even for, for plants, if you really pay attention to your own body, you can find you can guess which ones are medicinal. Even. Can, can I read a, a quick passage from your book about this experience? Okay. The wilderness taught me other useful things, one of them being nature is fair to a fault. This is why man's got to know his limitations. The other is hard to put into words. Civilized people are clueless. Hunter-gatherers get it, but they are scarce nowadays. There is human nature attuned to living with the band back at camp. Social life with the band, with family, friends, and rivals is something we have evolved a social and conceptual mindset to cope with. But this amounts to precisely half of what it is to be human. There is a flip side. Entire second half to human nature which is the human nature sculpted for use when alone in the wilderness. Few people ever experience it. The second human nature fascinated me. To experience the second human nature, you must go alone to deep wilderness without seeing people speaking or seeing human structures. Human structures and altered landscapes are like manifested thoughts. You can feel the concepts and human striving behind them. To look at them is to be reminded of others. If you are alone but around artifice made by hand and mind of man, you don't get the second human nature, bush mode. Instead, you get its miserable cousin, cabin fever. Same goes if if you are near another person, unless you can salvage some fractional bush mode by being exquisitely in tune with that person and so communicate without speech. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, so there is a there is a um, another mode. It's almost like you have uh, two sides of a coin for human nature, and one of them one of them can become immensely powerful if you're in the bush. So it's a, it's like a second way of of being, and it's so useful. It's just amazing what you can accomplish with it. Like I used to be able to to get um, 
uh, so in tune with the environment. I was aware of every owl, the movement of every deer. I could tell the species and size of an animal just by the sound of it moving through the, uh, through the boxwood. You know, it's swishing, how thick it's swishing felt. So it's, it's, um, it's an extraordinarily powerful experience. But it takes a while to get into. So I, I think I described in my book as well that the, the first 10 days, like a lot of people just do 10 days and try to think that they can get into bush mode like that. But you need way more than that. 10 days, you just feel a slight uneasiness, like something's changing. And it's really around uh, 24 that you get the first uh, real effect where you start to um, lose a habit that you don't even know that you have, which is the habit of compressing your thoughts enough where if you had to, you could put words to them. And w- once you relax that, then your mind becomes much more powerful for um, integrating yourself with the environment because you're not trying to communicate it anymore. So you, you lose that ability to communicate with others, which is, a, which is a powerful ability. It's almost like a form of magic. But you get a different form of magic, which is that you you become increasingly more in tune with what's around you. And around 40 days, you get the day and night become quite similar because when you're moving around in the daytime, you're daydreaming. And your daydreams are impelling you to do what you do. So it's like you're dreaming and following your dreams. And in the night, what you're dreaming is reality. So there's different animals and you know, having activities around. There might be a bear tearing into a rotted stump and you would dream that and where it happened as you're sleeping. So you're dreaming the reality around you. So this, in this sense, the day and the night are quite similar. And then by 65 days, your self is gone. So you don't, if there's no others, you don't need a self. And, you know, at that point, you're exquisitely in tune with your environment. You're aware of every animal, every potential danger. You're, you trust your instincts to a certain point. So if you have an instinct that a bear is watching you, you can immediately just scan your environment and pick out a bear, even if it's just a part of one eye and an ear sticking out from behind a black stump hundreds of meters away, you can pick it out even through all the leaves. So, you know, they say that for um, walking through the woods that there's, you know, 10 animals aware of you for every one that you're aware of. But when you're in bush mode, you can see how humans used to be an apex predator and a very dangerous animal because you become aware of everything else around you. And if anything, it's quite often that you're aware of the animals before they are aware of you. So yeah, I think uh, you know. For instance, if you if you were, uh, for instance, if you were a sniper and you'd been in the in the bush for sixty five plus days alone, like I wouldn't want to go and try to contend with you <laughs> and stay away because you know a person like that is in an extraordinarily exquisite uh, unification with their environment, and there's no chance of sneaking up to them. Not even when they're asleep, there'd be no chance. And I, I was telling you before you hit record that that this was was really what blew my mind. Um, I, I, part of this project um, of, of Mountain Whispers is exploring um, uh, altered states of consciousness or, or optimal psychology, and and so something that's common is um, let, let's say in adventure sports the the self does quiet down and you're you're completely tuned in to the environment uh, uh, around you and but that's nothing compared to 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 what you described here um yeah i've heard some people mentioning a flow state before and mm-hmm. you could imagine it's a very strong continuous flow state that you never flip out of that that's so what came to mind yeah like the because because I think the you you're in a let's say when you're when you're mountain biking in a, a very high consequence line you're 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 in a flow state just to to uh, manage the high consequence but there's there's a number of thinkers who who are drawing the line between say a flow state in extreme sports and the flow states that shamanistic practices get into mm-hmm. and I can see like the the experience that you're 
pointing to is very much just kind of connecting those. Yeah, and, it's true. But there is, there is a little bit of friction when you try to flip between them. So it's, I'm quite, I was quite good at flipping out of bush mode to try to get back into normal mode. But it's still, if I was in six months, it would take six months to normalize with a lot of work. Because well, what you'll find is that um, you can read people's thoughts off their face and you're in real time, you're catching every, you know, every syllable they meant to speak but didn't or they chose what was the meaning of different words they had in a sentence where they chose this word and not another more common word. So it's almost as if you were studying their words as literature, but in a deep sense where you, maybe you studied for months, you know, just the passage of what was a 20 minute conversation. So you get this deep insight into the, um, the thoughts of every person that you're meeting, but it's mentally exhausting. And also your own uh, face is an open book. So all your own emotions and expressions are very readable on your face because you're not masking it. And it could be even that some of the extra energy to do this, not all of it is just through sugar in your brain, you know, causing you to be tired. Some of it might be because you're devoting nothing to shielding your own emotions and thoughts. And they're just flickering across your face as they occur but you're picking up all the micro expressions of the person around you. So this makes you feel a little bit sketchy and uh, it's uh, it can be difficult to pull out of this, uh, take some work. And there's, there's a few other effects, but that's a big one. That, that's interesting. Cause I, I uh, almost would have thought that um, we, there's a lot of social skills that we probably take for granted. And, and I would have thought that transition time uh, involves relearning, people's facial expressions but it sounds like you said you had a heightened understanding of people's facial yeah, expressions heightened, times a thousand and then to learn not to do that is important because you know what you what you realize when you come out of the bush unless you're going to a nepalese village high in, in the um, himalayas you'll find out that people are very nasty to each other or very cutting or not very you know they don't really have very much time for each other so the, the way people are from the city interact with each other is very brusque to the point of extreme rudeness to someone who's used to attending to everything. And so that's uh, to, you have to become thick skinned enough to sort of deal with that again. Cause mm. it, you know, the people are sort of their, their words are almost like working at each other, almost like, you know, they're going at each other with uh, tongue and hammer, you know, but, uh, but I've noticed that in certain villages, like, in, like in Nepalese villages where they don't meet that many people. And sometimes they're very attentive to who they meet, like the ones who would do the full greeting when they see someone. They're, they're very careful. And I, I wonder, you know, what they would see with Westerners hiking through. We must come across as like rhinoceroses or something, <laughs> like very thick-skinned and kind of barging everywhere. Because hmm. the, the, uh, the way Westerners just kind of immediately say what they want and push for it and the way they sort of, the way they uh, interact with each other in a relatively nasty way. Now, I'm not sure if that's really true that they're nasty or if it's just, in, just in a, uh, something that also occurs because of spending a long time alone. But it, it did always seem to me and to other people who've done similar things that uh, people are far too short with each other mm. when you first come out and see how, they're, how they behave in the city. On the note of night uh, and day kind of coming together and, 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 and establishing a level of consciousness in your sleep, did that change, I guess, how you interpret or give credence to the dream state outside of bush mode? I'm not sure if that would be the case, but it could just be a mm -hmm. particularity of me. Because, for instance, I, normally I don't have any inner dialogue and I don't have any mind's eye. So, um, and nor am I disturbed. If I do have a dream that has some images flickering with it, it doesn't matter how disturbing or not disturbing, it doesn't seem to affect me. 
So I, I might have a, an unusual mind that way. So I'm not sure if I can speak about dreams in a regular sense. But when I was in the bush, though, there was a, a slight difference. Sometimes if I was doing something very wrong, some part of deep in my subconscious would recognize this and it would send me a vision. So I'm someone who normally has no, no mind's eye. But uh, like I, I might have written about this one example, but uh, there's once when my water supply was about to go entirely dry because it had been a terrible drought, like a high 30s or 40 degrees Celsius, you know, for day upon day upon day. And uh, I, was, I was walking along you know, on crispy pine needles and, uh, you know, going toward my water source where I was taking water from quite a far away up the mountain. And it was, you know, coming down a, a um, pipe that I could use. And the pipe was still running. There's still a bit of water in it. But I had a vision of a skeletal hand sticking out from an empty lake that had cracked into oxagons or hexagons, you know, when the mud cracks and curls like that. And there was a wharf of dry wood with a boat that was stuck in the mud and the skeletal hand was sticking up. And this is while I'm completely awake. I'm just walking through a sunlit forest. And suddenly this vision takes over even what I'm seeing. So it's, it's covering my entire, you know, it's what I see and what I am for that moment is that vision. And then it passes. And then based on that vision, I hiked far up the mountain to see where the origin of my water source was, which was a split in the rock where some water came out and ran for a little bit. And then it usually it fell over a waterfall and then continued down as a little stream. Well, I went up to check it and it was almost invisible because there's no more waterfall. It just disappeared into a crack and there was almost none of it left. It was down to mud and I could see I was taking that last bit of water it was still coming to the pipe, but essentially I had to find an alternate water source. Yeah, so based on that vision, I started following a large bull elk that I knew had a harem of four or five uh, females nearby. And I thought, well, he should be down by the lake. You know, what's uh, this pretty big animal to be living up here? So he must be getting water somewhere. So I just followed his tracks. And eventually I found the place where he'd been getting water a little bit higher up. Even. Mm. Yeah, but without it, that vision, though, I would have ran out of water. And yeah, there's, I, I, I'm thinking of a, there's a book called The 50-Bit Problem that talks about how our normal waking consciousness um, takes in 50 bits maybe per second of information, but our entire senses is, is taking something like um, 10 million or something. And, yeah, and I, lots, it, lots gets discarded, even in the retina and different things, they, there's layers where it gets discarded sometimes, or a lot of it does. And it makes me wonder if there's like deep intuition operating in situations yeah, I, like that i would agree i would describe it as intuition as well and you and your existence there was just following your intuition but wow was it ever fun you get amazing sleeps like when we fully in turn with the in tune with the photo cycle like that when you wake up you're so refreshed in the morning and, and, and so that was going to be another one of my questions of like if you're if there's a level of consciousness i'm wondering if it if it's the same level of depth so it, so you were getting good sleeps even with a level of consciousness Amazing, unbelievably good sleeps and then when you wake up like everything is so interesting around you so you know i would go and like for instance if the yellow swallowtail butterflies were chasing each other i might go out to a clearing and watch them for a little bit then it, then usually around the same time the the swallowtails are doing their mating dance the chipmunks will also be battling you know up and down trees over who gets access to, to um hazelnuts and things like that so you can watch them for a little bit and then go along and see how the fungus is growing on certain trees nearby. And then maybe go fish for some salmon and come back. It's very, very satisfying days. Yeah. It's yeah. a, a really fun way to live. Because I've personally found that um, 
the the experiences that I have in like a deep state of flow and resonance and 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 it's just a fraction of what your experience is is really uh, almost what I orientate my life around to experience. So, was there a feeling of not wanting to to leave those eighty six days, or what made you leave it day eighty six? Well, eventually winter's coming, and I didn't think that I wanted to do uh, winter alone because you know winter's different because you can't get out and, and stretch your legs as much. And sure. Also, yeah. Like, yeah. So it's. I think it's tougher. Like, for instance, a lot of tribal people would consider that surviving the winter wasn't an important thing, and yeah. um, even a dangerous thing. Like my grandfather used to have a, a friend. He was from one of the Cree uh, nations. You know, it was, it was Inu, but it's still a, a type of Cree. This is on the coast of Labrador. He used to sail wooden ships up there and try to trap codfish and then sail back. But he had a Cree friend that he would stop him to visit each time when he was coming to um, go to his usual harbor. And he'd stop with him, chat with him, do some trade. And then one day he stopped in and the guy said, well, you won't see me next time. So let's say especially good uh, conversation and goodbye this time. And he said, well, why do I want to see you next time? He says, well, I'll be dead. And my grandfather says, well, no man knows when he's going to, when his time is up. And you look still healthy enough. You can still walk around. And he said, no, I can't walk fast enough. So he said, once winter comes, which is soon, my, uh, uh, my son will shoot me because he doesn't want me slowing down the tribe as we try to cross the mountains to our winter refuge. So you can see how the, the tribe, and sure enough, when he came back the next year, it was his son there to greet him. So that was the tradition for them. And that, you can see how the, the tribal people understood the difficulty of winter and the difficulty, like they, they couldn't have people that were um, too weak slowing down the tribe. I, that, that's a, an incredible story. And I was just listening to a podcast um, talking about um, – uh, cultural differences in perception of death. And it's funny, in the Western culture, um, the, the individualist culture, th- that is is horrifying. But in mm-hmm. it, interpreted in that culture where it is fundamentally a, a band together and this person is slowing it down, it, that, that's much less of a tragedy, if anything, like a sacrifice for the, the community. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I mean, I wouldn't want to over overstress the comparison, but in a way, you know, we have some similarities to Aztecs, the way we run things. Like, for instance, when my father was, uh, what was he, around mid-70s or something, he came down with uh, dementia. And he'd always said that if he ever came down with dementia, he didn't want to continue living. But the thing is, once you come down with dementia, you're demented. And then you can't be someone who can sign anything that would say that, you know, you're not allowed to have assisted suicide or anything. So he had to um, suffer with dementia for quite a while. And it's something where an Aztec priest, even though they're very cruel with all their heart slashing, you know, even the Aztec priest would say, what, it's your own father? And you've got him in this bed and he's just there suffering and now infections are getting him and he's uh, out of his mind and he can't, can't do or say anything. He's, he's completely gone as a human. You're keeping him alive as a shell. And they say, oh, how cruel, which, you know, in a way it is. And we say, well, why are you doing that? And I could only explain to him ways which would, Maybe he would understand them a little bit. I would say that people in our culture have a spiritual view. There's a sacredness to the existence of the body or the beating of the heart. And so we have to keep them alive for this reason. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what our, our culture has as a view. Mm. So even, even someone who's extremely demented in hospital will have um, certain people arguing that their life still has to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas the, the Aztec might think that was cruel, where we would think that what he's doing is cruel, you know, all this uh, heart slicing you're into yeah so it's a matter of cultural perspective sometimes changing gears slightly um i'm I'm curious how i guess um you 
you, you mentioned your travel started from wanting to see the the ecosystems of the world. Um, how did I guess your your love of exploration and I guess connecting to the natural world around you play into your travels um, soon after? Well, I would always I would always seek out uh, tribal people or unusual. Like if I if I was in Mali, I'd go to see the Dogon escarpment to see what the Dogon people were up to. These kind of things. Or when I was in Congo, I went out to live with uh, one of the Bambuti pygmy tribes to hunt antelope with them and live in those little uh, leaf huts. So I wanted to have these unusual experiences because it is a, a dying world. I mean, it's, it, these, these things will be gone soon. It's important to see them while we still have a chance because a lot of that is fading. Like, like, for instance, in northern Burma, I was in some towns where they were still getting around by a stagecoach. And this was in the 90s. And I remember talking to them like, oh, are these stagecoaches for tourists? And they go, like, tourists, what's that? And then I tried to explain to them. He goes, no, 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 there are no tourists here. This is how we get around the stagecoach. And so, what is it? What do you mean by stagecoach? So you have like one of those um, wooden vehicle that's kind of like a more luxurious wagon with like sprung wheels and uh-huh. horses pull it. That's funny. I was, I was, thinking, I think there's a brand of bus called stagecoach. So I was, like, I was just trying to figure. Yeah, it so out. this would yeah, be wow. this would be the old fashioned one where you mm. almost like if you were going, you know, in Western United States during the, the Wild West, you know, they would have stagecoaches. Yeah, so they were they were still having a stagecoach, and they didn't. Um, they didn't think there was anything unusual about that. And there was a lot of cases like that. Like I, I met a guy who had an injury once in Northern Africa. And I was with a, uh, a friend who could speak his language, which is Tuareg. And I said, what, what's up with him? He's injured. And he talked to him a little bit and he said, oh, yeah, he uh, was in a sword fight with another man over a woman. <laughs> and he got injured, but he beat the other guy. I'm like, okay, so here I, here I meet a guy who's actually sword fighting other people and he's injured from it. So that's almost the tail end of that. There's, like, there's not a lot of sword fighting going on in most continents. And so sometimes we're in, uh, in the very least visited parts of Africa. I might get onto a, like, some sort of transportation. It might just be the, back, the flat, uh, flat bed at the end of a truck. But I look around at who's sitting with me. And it might be a guy with a mace, a guy with a bow, a guy with a spear, and a guy with a sword. So they're all armed with this, you know, what I would consider primitive or medieval weapons. But they're just smiling. Everything's normal. You know, <laughs> and, uh, trying to talk to me, so they, you know, going around regularly armed with uh, with this kind of thing. It's just um, this hundreds of years out of date. It, as so, you, you know, I feel blessed that I was able to see you know the the tail end of some of these things because all, all these cultures are ending. Yeah, it's all going to be in suits. You're right in that you you probably did catch. Um, there's a lot of those places that you would have visited that now, uh, yes, though the there'll still be. Um, uh, more traditional elements to society, but they'll they'll very much all still have cell phones and very much still be connected to to the internet. I, I feel like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and these more traditional elements kind of mutate over time. So, so for instance, like in Scotland, let's say there's some Scottish culture still present, but a lot of it is that Highland game sort of thing, where it's sort of like a, a tourist friendly or like a way of sort of compacting the the culture in a way where it's uh, something you can view and not something you live so much. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure there's some people still carrying on Scottish culture, but you know, a lot of it is just like, it seems like it's for TV consumption. And I think that's what, what happens to a lot of cultures. Well, they have like uh, something that represents their culture, but the, the real culture has moved away from it. And in reality, you know, everyone will probably just end up on a laptop. And if you were like, let's say we met some ancient Egyptians and we were trying to describe what we do. I think that probably at least 19 out of 20 of us, if the, the Egyptian was trying to comprehend it, 
he'd eventually, at the end of talking and talking, he'd finally begin to get a bit of understanding. And he'd probably put us down as scribes. Like everyone, everyone's doing the job of a scribe now, which used to be a very, very rare job in ancient Egypt. But mm-hmm. uh, n- nowadays, yeah, I'm sure 19 out of 20 people scribes. Most people work with the, working with symbols while sitting and there's some sort of organization going on. It's definitely scribe work. In, in noticing, you, you spoke very articulately about the way that the mind uh, has to, I guess, compress experience into language. It made me think, of the there's a tendency a modern tendency to want to capture any thought and write it down do you do you feel like there is processing and reasoning or even insight that's being lost because we're obsessed with translating well, ideas into to words yeah writing down thoughts is very bad for intuition i feel interesting so that's why i don't like if i'm even if i'm making a decision of something to purchase i try not to think about it too much I think it's really, really easy to overthink things. It's a, it's a modern uh, curse to overthink things. It's better just to make your decision and just move on from it. And then don't criticize your past self too much. You have to have mercy towards your past self as well. And in that way, you can uh, go through life much more easily. Because you, you don't have to be filled with self-doubt or to be worried, oh, did I, did I make the right choice here or there? You know, you just make your choice and you live with it and then move on to your next choices. And in this way, you can be more in tune with intuition. Mm. I like that. Do, do you have much of a, a writing practice? Do you keep travel journals? Uh, recently, I've been trying to learn Russian, so I'm sort of more focused on that. I do like a couple hours a day. Of, uh, but I used to keep journals. And then eventually I transcribed them, and then I, I threw them out because they were too heavy. To, uh, no one really wanted to store them for me. So <laughs> they're, they're sort of transcribed and tossed out now. But I used to constantly have a travel journal. I would write about experiences if I was – Worried that I would like, especially if it was a conversation that I felt was very interesting. That's one thing it's hard to get intuition on of uh, if you're trying to relate how a conversation went. So I would write down these things, or if it was a new idea that I wanted to ensure that I didn't forget, I'd write it down. Yeah, so there there is some use to to writing and um, uh, keeping track of things, but uh, I think the intuition is the most important. And it's possible mm-hmm. to hone your intuition. I mean, I described in my book about how. You know, when you're, if you're in the market and you're trying to buy some fruit and someone's ripping you off for mangoes, you can learn what would be the equivalent of, uh, you know, a lot of things they would try to teach you in an MBA program. You know, you can get things just by being ripped off from mangoes far more than what you could learn in the MBA program. Because what you should do is watch the person's face. And even though you can't entirely understand their language or what they're saying, you can watch, you know, pay attention to their tone of voice. And then later you can check, like if you got the intuition that he ripped you off quite badly on the price of the mangoes, later you can check with the local and find out how badly you're ripped off. And then you can you know, remember these uh, tones of voice and these uh, facial expressions. And it just gives you a, a better intuition in the future for who's trying to scam you or not. So you know, it's very important, people's faces and voices. It's much more important even than what's being said. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, uh, that my experience has been in that I um, – I went through high school and, and university um, in the, um, the 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 late capitalism bubble of seeing success as as uh, material success and growing the corporate ladder. That was um, my entire vision of success, and it wasn't until after un- university that I realized uh, it was all a scam. And I um, and I quit my job and 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 spent a couple of years traveling um, before returning to work. Um, but when I found, when I returned from work, I found those couple of years of travel, uh, 
actually uh, equipped me for success in uh, the corporate world a lot better than if I had just continued to train my chain myself to a desk for additional years during yeah. that period. I learned a lot about human nature on the road. Uh, I feel that being on the road and actually dealing with people and uh, making your own decisions and being independent in that sense, and also you know fully bearing the brunt of your own mistakes, is much more important than just continuing what's this sort of infantile uh, school environment. So yeah, I, I think you know in some cases sometimes you might have to go to university because there's gatekeepers and you you need a certain document to be able to to get it you know get into a field that interests you. But in general, it's very very poor value for money. It'd be much better to to travel and try things. What do you see as Western rite of passage ceremonies? Because I think I think of myself as as that being a rite of passage for me in terms of there was a a, a pre. I didn't think I truly grew up until I I had th- that experience, and I also believe as people I'll meet in the thirties and forties, and I can feel like they are still a. Uh, an, an angsty 14-year-old boy in a 40-year-old body. Okay. Well, I, I think probably getting out of the house was a... I'm not sure if people do this anymore, but I remember the, the rule used to be in my neighborhood, even with my family, 18 and you're out of the house. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure if that applies anymore. I think a lot No of one uh, can afford that anymore, especially if they're living in a city. I think, I, I yeah, I, it's yeah. it's very unaffordable depending where you live. To, I, I think a lot of people are staying at home past 18. But I think maybe standards might be higher too. Like I, I had friends who would just sleep, like they'd be out of the house. But uh, like friends, I had some friends who really liked uh, rock climbing. This is before anyone really knew about what rock climbing was. It'd be back in the early 90s or, or late 80s. And they just went out to a, a mountain town and they would just live like 10, 12 to a room. Basically the same as if they're like a bivouac there. And they just go out climbing every day. And they do enough work to sort of keep themselves in climbing. And for them, that was an experience that they're out of the house and they're doing what they love in the mountains. But they're, you know, they're it's basically a third world standard of living that they were enduring. And that was considered acceptable back then. But I think modern people, they want more than that. So they want their Netflix and they want, uh, you know, a comfy couch and everything else. They certainly wouldn't just be sleeping on a concrete floor somewhere. But, uh, you know, I think people, maybe they were a little bit tougher, you know, for better or for worse. They might've been a bit tougher back then. I I think that's, that's accurate. I think there's a, um, there's a level of conditioning that the, um, I guess the, the consumer world has has imposed on us to, yeah, to 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 feel uh, attached to to our devices and to our Netflix subscriptions and things. Mm-hmm. I, I feel I'd be the worst ever hotel inspector. Like really, I'd be the worst because I used to go to the hotels where it's unbelievably bad. Like uh, there was one of them in Africa where. It's very expensive, like a $60 hotel. Quite often, these African hotels are extremely expensive. But it had uh, carnivorous ants living in the toilet. So if you used it, you would have to flush while lunging out of the room and slamming the door. And the carnivorous ants would surge up out of the toilet where they were living, somewhere within the porcelain. And they'd try to, like, bite your ass, but basically you'd be out the door and closing the door, but you could hear them, like, clattering, kind of, like, their mandible scritching on the wood of the door. And then, of course, it'd be full of mosquitoes and like broken slats on the, the pieces of wood you're meant to sleep on and some old sweaty mildewed mattress with a mosquito net with uh, the holes in it and, uh, you know, dusty concrete floor. And that one might be a $60 a night hotel room back when $60 was real money. So, like, uh, you know, sometimes it gets expensive and bad at the same time. 
And hearing stories like like this and 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 other ones in your book, Mike, I'm curious. How do you relate to to fear? How often do you get scared? Hmm. I don't know. I still get nervous a little bit. Like for instance, when I was leaving uh, Poland, I felt a little bit nervous that it overstayed my Schengen. So I think I was like, by the time I'd even looked at how I was doing on my Schengen, I was already like that was the day I was one day over. And I thought, okay, well, in for a dime, in for a dollar, right? So I, I continued just visiting for another week to, to uh, maximize my time in Poznan. And then I was leaving Poland. And I was a little bit worried that with overstaying Schengen, sometimes they put a limit or they ban you for returning, or there might have been something inconvenient happening. But, you know, so even after all this travel, I still feel a little bit nervous about it. Now, in this case, I quite literally just played my Ukraine card. So I said, I'm a normally Ukrainian resident, and I put the card down. And she was like, mm, okay, and just looked at my passport a little bit. Because, see, I had a lot of stamps in and out of Ukraine, and then she just stamped me out. But, but yeah, even something like that, I can still get a little anxious about it because I didn't want to have the negative consequence of, let's say, I'm not sure what would happen if you overstayed Schengen. So I, I, what I wouldn't want to say is you can't come back in Schengen for a year. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a bit of anxiety still from that. But I don't really have so much fear. Like when I go into Ukraine uh, in about a week, you know, I know that missiles could come down or whatever, but uh, I'm not too worried about that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really bother me. I'll just continue on. Hey. And there's a lot of risks in life. I find it funny the way people calibrate risks, right? Like I have some friends who have gigantic guts from their enormous McDonald's consumption. You know, they have like, there's, there's one friend where he had so much he ordered from McDonald's that I had to take photos of it. I was like amazed, you know, there's <laughs> all this food piled there and he was actually going to eat that. And uh, he's got this gigantic gut. And then he talks about all these, like his fingers tingle. And I was trying to say, well, that's a sign of diabetes. He goes, oh, you think so? You know, like some people, and what I think is that he's taking enormous risks. So if you're someone who sits in your armchair and you're shoveling McDonald's in, you know, you might as well be on the front line of a war, like right down in the trenches where the, the bombs are landing, because that's your, your chance of dying is really, really high. Like I, like I used to go to sometimes to like um, raves and underground parties, like half for anthropological reasons. I found a kind of interesting liminal space where uh, people who sort of slipped through the cracks were like building their own counterculture. So it was kind of interesting to hang out with. But in the group of us, there was like 40, 40 of us maybe, and like maybe half of the people were DJs. <laughs> but uh, there was also eight people that uh, they were extreme drinkers. And they're the ones who, you know, at the end of a festival, you'd say, oh, where's where's Dylan? You know, okay, he's probably in the medical tent. You know, he must out and go and try to find him. Okay, who's going to try to get him home? You know, someone had to be responsible for him, like the ones who can't control their own behavior. Well, I remember thinking, I even said to my friends, like, these eight people, and I listed them. I said, they're probably not going to make it. They're going to die off. Because I've seen the same thing in Canada with, uh, with friends who are taking that sort of passive risk with their health. And my friends were saying, oh, you're being so morbid. How could you say that? They'll be fine. It's just funny. You know, okay, he drinks too much, but whatever. And uh, it was just like a few months ago that the last of the eight died. So all of them, all of them died within about 10 years of when I said they wouldn't make it. So it's all the guys who, like, would they would stay up for the whole festival. Like they'd go to Glastonbury and they wouldn't sleep the whole three days because they didn't want to miss a single band. And they were like drinking like uh, cider nonstop and maybe even doing uh, other kind of drugs and all that. Like the ones who really couldn't control themselves. You know, they all died off. But if you saw them, you wouldn't think they were the bravest people necessarily. But in a way, perhaps they are. I mean, they, they probably don't even know how brave they are, but they, maybe they're unaware of what kind of risk they're taking. But all these people who are overweight like that, like you even saw how COVID went and ripped through the people who were extremely obese and they had bad hearts and all that. So even 
something that should have been a more mild illness slammed them. So yeah, mm-hmm. so it, you know when I when I see like, people say that I take a lot of risk, which I did, you know, backpacking through Iraq during the war, went through Taliban controlled areas of Afghanistan into Somalia, like all these places. And okay, it's risky, but it's nothing compared to the nothing compared to my friend eating all those cheeseburgers. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because I I mean part of this project is exploring some of those fringe cultures, and I think about uh, and when I talk to base jumpers, for example, which is at, like at higher risk than than many other things one can do, you you get those two similar crowds to the to the to countercultural rave communities where there is people who are very conscious of the risk they're taking, and people who are in it because they're very fast and loose. Um, and they're not necessarily conscious of that. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you sometimes uh, point out to somebody, to people, what risk they're taking, or do you stay out of that conversation? It's, so, in in my situation, when I'm talking to people like that, because I'm not a base jumper, I'm not a sender. Uh, I I don't uh, yeah. necessarily feel uh, in a position to armchair talk to them about risk, you know. Okay. Yeah, I find I have a kind of a rule that I follow where if someone's taking risks that are more the ones that society approves of, such as becoming very obese, I will mention it to them once a year. So that's what I felt I've done my duty then. Because really, you know, people have got to uh, manage their own risks. Mm. But it it is unusual. I I wonder about that when people choose certain kinds of risks that uh, seem like there's not really much reward, but extreme danger. As a result, so I, you know, I took a lot of risk by backing, backing through war zones or into like deep into jungles or mountains and uh, to see the tribal people. There's some risk associated with that, but I felt I got so much back from it. Whereas if you're if you're risk, you're, if you're taking far more risk than me by uh, eating fast food, I don't really feel there's a benefit because you're just feeling kind of sluggish, and then eventually you can't move around, and your life becomes more boring. And uh, but you, the risk factor is far higher. It's, yeah, it's a similar in, – in exploring risks through this project, I've come to a, a similar conclusion in that uh, the, the flow states that we were talking about, that's essentially to me what justifies that level of risk, the experience that you get from it. And um, for example, if I would previously had lazily driven um, around the block or um, to, to the supermarket without putting a seatbelt on, that to me is not – uh, that's a risk I no longer take because there's no reward from that versus uh, taking oh, a, a very high consequence mountain line is something uh, I'm more comfortable with because I know that there is a high return on risk from it. Oh, wow. Know? That's an interesting insight. I think I'm going to use that. Next time I, I see a cheeseburger guy, I'm going to ask him if he gets a flow state from uh, <laughs> overconsumption of fast food. Mm-hmm. And if not, yeah, I'll, I'll use your idea. It's, just, it's the same. Actually, it was funny. I um, I realized the most dangerous thing I was doing was cycling to work in Vancouver, you know, and that oh, and a lot more God. dangerous than just commuting. And so, um, I the choice to not wear a helmet uh, unless I'm truly going to benefit from having the wind going through my hair and, and taking in the magic of the moment, uh, to me, it doesn't seem like a high return on risk to not wear a helmet and knowing, I guess, how important cognitive function is as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's that's something that's changed over time as people are starting to appreciate head injury. Yeah, but that's that's quite a lot of risk. I have a, a friend who always cycles to work in Vancouver and he has a lot of harrowing stories. It's almost like the cyclists now, since they're going through such heavy traffic, they're feeling a little bit like the motorcyclists. Like the motorcycle guys always have stories. And now the cyclists do as well. 
For sure. For sure. But so, so circling back though, I, I, um, I, I've read, I know you've had some harrowing situations, uh, one in Puntland, Somalia, like others in kind of regions of, uh, like the, the Armenia. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious. I, it almost feels like that, um, that level of second self that we were talking about, that human intuition, um, has almost played a role in you managing very high risk situations or, it, it staying alive through some of those dangerous regions. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, yeah. Because usually the risk is coming through humans. So I, I I learned what risk there is in the wilderness, which is substantial. But uh, when you're traveling, it's usually coming through humans. So if you're very good at finding out who is a good person, and if you're a very good judge of character, and if you really hone that by trying to become a good judge of character, and even just start in the marketplace with who's being honest and who's not, but you can. You know, every negative experience you have with someone, you can try to uh, hone your ability to judge character. And then I, I feel that once you have this, it's almost like a superpower. You can even go into war zones. And, uh, you know, you often where something goes wrong there is you get in with the wrong crowd. But if you, you know, simply make sure you get passed from one good person to another and who they recommend, you can stay like in a network of fairly good people. And never get down in, in a network of people who are just trying to uh, maybe capture you and sell you for ransom or who knows, rob you, stab you, all kind of things. Because often when I talk to people who had a very negative experience, like, uh, for instance, one guy who was walking with a, a guy who was just leading him further and further up a mountain and eventually pulled out a knife and robbed him. You know, I said, you know, when were you aware that you were in a bad situation? He said, oh, you know, halfway through, I started to have like a little bit of an intuition that maybe this guy wasn't, uh, wasn't the right person to be hanging out with. But then he persisted walking with them just because I guess they'd had a rapport and they'd already been walking together for a while. And then as they got into a more and more remote area, the robbery took place. But I, you know, from my point of view, I was interested in hearing this, uh, his response because I could see that his intuition had been trying to talk to him halfway through and might have been saying, don't trust this guy, go back. But just because he felt that it would be rude, he carried on. But it would have been better to trust his intuition and not worry so much about the rudeness or even learn to make certain excuses like, oh, is this the time? I, I forgot, I've got to, uh, you know, I have someone to meet, you know, whatever you can say and just make your way back. Or even there's an even more, uh, there's another way to do it where you could just almost by accident, you know, you appear to notice something that, oh, I'm interested in this now. And you go to an area where there's a lot of people and then say, I'm having fun here. I don't want to get away from it. And it sort of like derails the plan without even showing to the guy that you're aware of it. There's a way to kind of just slip through the cracks of these potential dangers, as long as you're a good judge of character and you can see if, if character is changing or what you can determine from your environment. Is there any yeah. uh, stories, I guess, that come to mind of, of during your travels and in, into to d- dangerous places of your intuition, picking up something slightly off? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it's hard because I, I became so good at it after a while. I just wouldn't have the troubles that other people would, but quite often, let's say you want to get from one town to another and you're in a very rural area. You'll just ask around for someone who has a motorcycle. And sometimes you get swarms, like 20 people come and they're all calling out, yeah, you can uh, ride with me on my motorbike. Yeah, like I'll charge you 10 bucks. And uh, you just look to the faces. And among that crowd, there, there's probably two or three who want to rob you. But uh, I had one instance where, you know, I, I picked one guy whose face and demeanor I liked. And then I was, you know, I really started going along uh, through the jungle. And uh, I was talking to him, saying, yeah, you're a little bit more expensive than the other guys. He goes, yeah, I know, but I wasn't planning to just drive you somewhere and stab you. He goes, yeah, I could kind of, <laughs> I could kind of feel that. I said, some of those guys were, right? He goes, yeah, some of those guys were. 
<laughs> so, you know, that's a little bit of feedback to show that I was able to determine. Yeah, is, so it, is, it, is there any examples where your intuition was wrong? Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, actually, I have done uh, things wrong, but it's when I've been sick. So once in North Africa, like I, I was feeling really, really uh, ill. I don't know what it was. I must have eaten some bad food or something. Normally, I have a strong stomach, but I was feeling like very weak and kind of fragile. It might even have been the beginning of a majority. It's hard to say, really. But I was getting like so bored of just being in my hotel that I decided I would just go to walk to what was clearly a tourist site. And along the way, there was some kids. I didn't even see them. But they jumped me from behind and like started strangling me. And one of them like grabbed a pouch I had that had, I think I had my passport in it and some money. And they ran away with it. And that would have never happened if I was like situationally aware and not ill. Because remember, they're, they're looking to, uh, to find the victim. I shouldn't even have gone out in that state. But I was just so bored that I, I felt that I could get away with it. And it wasn't the case. And what I did then is like I talked to some kids on the street and I said, my bag's been stolen. And I said, if you can get it back for me, uh, you can have the money that was in it. I just want the passport back. And they said, oh, just sit here. And like one of them brought out a, a plastic chair and another one brought me a cup of tea. And I sat and eventually they came back with the bag. And they said, we can really have the money. I said, yeah, keep the money. I just want the passport. And I, I saw it as like a learning, you know, I've had stuff like that happen a few times. How many times have you been robbed in Nothing that? I think times, statistically, but, uh, you, you would have to have been robbed from that much travel, right? Well, yeah, I got a lot of clothing robbers. But, I, you know, there's a psychological reason for that. It's because whenever I bought a nice shirt or a nice pair of trousers, I'd be hanging it outside my hut on the line. And in the morning, like, the nice thing was gone. Or even sometimes flying, like when I was flying once from St. Petersburg to uh, Ukraine on the, um, the same day, actually, that that plane was blasted out of the sky, the... Uh, forget what the, I think it was a Malaysian a flight to Malaysia or something like that anyway there was a, a plane that got destroyed by a boot missile well, on that very day like uh, my nice shirt was stolen out of my bag I'm not sure if it was in Ukraine or or leaving through Russia but that kind of thing would happen so often that I wouldn't even want to have nice clothes so I had a lot of nice clothing stolen I had a few like robberies like in Angola I went a little bit too far on the beach and uh, there I determined that, you know, I, I kind of do a debriefing afterward of myself. You know, what mistake had I made? So a bunch of guys jumped me and they, they grabbed my beach bag and there'd been a, like some cash in it that they grabbed. They didn't even grab the more valuable cash. They, just, they didn't identify. You know, they grabbed some of the local cash, but they left pounds sterling, which I guess they didn't understand what that was. But they ran away with it. And I was trying to think, what kind of mistake did I make? And I figure in this case, it was that I had noticed. So I was aware that there was something going on. So it looked like groups of like people were talking to people and, uh, you know, something weird was happening. But I thought, well, I have time to sort of go and see this shipwreck and come back before they, because I kind of knew how long it usually takes pe people who want to rob, they've got to coordinate and make a plan. And I thought I should be, I'm going to do this so quickly that I can see that and come back before they formulated and spring their trap. But what I hadn't considered was the cell phones had arrived in that part of Angola. So they were coordinating by cell phone. And it was far quicker than what I'd expected. And that's what I was trying to figure out why. And I noticed that some of them did have cell phones and I go, okay, it's the phone and I hadn't accounted for that. Because you can, you can assemble your gang much more quickly through phone. Because I'm kind of used to people assembling to try to rob me and I know how long it normally takes. But in this case, I was off. So I, I just kept that in mind from then on, that there's a, there's a new, uh, new tech in town for the bandits. 
It, it's funny as I as I hear these stories, I I just I can't help but feel like um, so often. Um, let's say if I'm talking to an adventure athlete, I'm I'm trying to understand what what makes them a professional athlete, uh, and it. it Things like this element of intuition is what makes your professional traveler. If there was such a thing, it, it separates that the people who who um, yeah, it's all intuition without without the intuition. Mm-hmm. I, and I and I find myself coming back to you, you saying earlier. You have no inner dialogue and no. Did you say mind's eye? Yeah, no mind's eye. So I, T- tell me that. I what does that mean? It means okay. Let's say I said, imagine an apple. Like, I think for you, perhaps you could have like an image of an apple and it's in your mind. Well, for me, I have nothing or almost nothing. So I'm noticing as I'm aging, it's like getting slightly more of a mind's eye. I'm not sure if maybe some neurons are changing or dying or who knows what, but uh, I can envision it a tiny bit now where it used to be able to, not at all. And also I don't have, like, you know, when um, there's certain people, including uh, one author named Sam Harris, who was saying part of the reason he was trying to study, uh, uh, I think he was into meditation of some sort, but he, he once on a podcast, he was saying why he studied it. And he said, it's because his mind is just, it's almost, he feels like he's on a bus near the bus driver. And like, it was all this chatter and all these self doubts and everything else constantly uh, hearing it in his mind. And that's why he wanted to practice meditation to quiet that. And I was saying, Oh, for mine, I'm already, I'm already sitting where he's trying to get because there's, there's nothing. It's just like completely silent. I, I'm similar in that I've yeah I've been been meditating for for ten years and and it's still um still so much of my practice is just sitting and listening to this chatter which is is clearly not me I'm just as a passenger I'm like what is all this chatter in my mind just listening to it you know and and yeah, just... I don't have any chatter <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately I don't know it's just a, a difference yeah it's just uh, completely quiet for me. If you had to guess what what the advantages, I, I can I already know what the advantages of no internal chatter is. I love that, but what, could you think of what the advantages of not having mind's eye could be in terms of processing and intuition? Hmm. I think that it might be that I'm not becoming conscious of as much, so I can rely more on intuition. Because your intuition is, if you're not conscious of something, but your brain is still functioning, then it's basically intuitive. So it's like that um, description about how he was able to repair the uh, the broken fishing uh, fishing reel. Can you tell us that story? Because I, I think that was before we hit record, actually. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So when I was surviving by catching salmon one time when I, you know, that's the biggest part of my diet when I was uh, living in the bush for a long time once. And I was near at a time when there's some rain and the rocks were very slippery and I was near to a dangerous stream. I slipped and I was going toward the stream and it would have been dangerous if I'd been in there and sucked down to some sort of whirlpool. So I had to fling myself flat to prevent that. And I managed not to fall in, but I kind of smacked the, uh, the reel of my fishing rod against the stone and clearly there was something wrong with it. It was broken. And I'm not an expert at repairing these kind of things at all. Like normally I would try to get a manual or even bring it to a shop, you know, typically if I had a problem like that. But here I was dependent on catching these salmon as the principal uh, protein and fat source in my diet. So I had nuts and berries, but that was the principal one. And uh, so it had to be done, and it had to be done right away. But I was at a state where I was so much into bush mode, I had absolutely no consciousness or any kind of, couldn't even force an internal dialogue if I wanted to. Like right now, if I was reading a newspaper, I could read it out in my mind, you know, with a conscious effort. But then, you know, I was completely in bush mode. Just to, There was no difference between me and the environment. And yet I had to do something now highly technical. And I thought, oh, you know, it's like... Um, 
it should be a difficult thing to do. But what I noticed is that my fingers started moving and I could watch my hands and it was doing things. And sometimes it would undo what it did. And, you know, parts were moving around, being taken off and put on. I was not aware of why any of this was just happening. I was just, it was all by intuition, but I wasn't even conscious of where the intuition was coming from. And like in five minutes, I repaired the reel and it worked perfectly. But I would have had no idea what I did or, or I couldn't describe to anyone, you know, how to do it. So I guess, you know, you have this, um, there's no ability to communicate it, which is a, a bit of a de- um, bit of a deficit, I suppose. Because, you know, part of the human power is you can talk to people about how you did things. But in this case, just I'd done it by intuition and it was a one-off. And it was very, very important and saved my ability to fish. But, I, you know, I guess that's a, the, the power of, of intuition, even if you're, uh, and uh, even if you don't have a mind's eye or even if you're not uh, conscious of what you're doing. Have you spoken to, to I'm specifically thinking about how, in, in bush mode, you lost the ability to um, compress thoughts into words. I kind of wonder if that's linked to not having a mind's eye. Is there other people you've spoken to who have had similar experiences of, of going into to bush mode? And do you know if they've experienced the same yeah, thing of losing? They've experienced the same thing. So we, I've talked extensively with a, a whole bunch of people who've done you know the same amount of time that I've done in the bush, or sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. And they have extremely similar experiences. So usually it's for people who try to do this, about half of them go crazy and leave, or I'm just using crazy in like a colloquial sense that I'm not really sure that it's crazy. But if I read their diaries, like some, some of them would keep a diary as they go up and I can just see they're getting increasingly unhinged and then they, then they leave. Like their writings become very strange. And then you find that they're back down in town and they're like, I couldn't handle it. So that happens to quite a lot of people. And then the other ones describe the same uh, process that you know I, I encountered and that my friends encountered. Some of which, for my friends, they do have a mind's eye and they do have like internal dialogue. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder, you know, I'm not sure if it makes you go deeper into bush mode if I don't have these things, or maybe it's the same. I don't know. But yeah, and, I, had a, I had a lot of friends who did. And were you able to write down during that period, even without necessarily being able to communicate or put into words? Yeah, I could write if I wanted to, but I, I wouldn't have any mind's eye, of course, working mm-hmm. with my writing either. But I, I would just say. Uh, write what I was experiencing. Hmm. So it was possible to write. I tried not to do too much of that because, you know, if I was just uh, working at writing, it would, you know, I'm not sure how valuable it would have been to be in the bush. Because, hmm. you know, then I'd be just around working with words constantly. And I'd probably be researching and, uh, you know, constantly reading. So it might have detracted from the experience. Maybe hmm. not. It could be something to try. Hmm. And but, uh, the other thing that came up as you were sharing the story about the fishing rod is, um, so... Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel define flow states as selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. And it feels like oh, yeah. all of those elements come into play there. Yeah, yeah. Those, that's exactly how I would feel at all those times if I was to try to put it into words. But it'd just be like all day was like that. And then all day the next. Like, you know, if you're at a rave and you're like nicely drunk and with your friends and then you're kind of, you can get, get into kind of a flow state as well. But then you can pop out of it, and sometimes you know something's wrong. But in you know, in the wilderness, you can just be in the flow state, and it just it runs perfectly all the time, day and night. Yeah, it's the most amazing. It, you feel so refreshed in the morning. It's just an amazing feeling. It, it's funny you say it because I I truly did when I was at a festival during the summer. Truly did feel like when I was in that flow state, I was tapping into something very primal. You know, like it felt mm-hmm. like I was in a place that humans have been in 
for tens of thousands of years, you know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That, I, I almost wonder if some of the some of what's encountered in bush mode might be also a preparation for uh, someone who's banished or someone who's unaware of what tribal politics are. Because, you know, in a tribe, there's a lot more politics than people assume and a lot more even nasty politics. It can get quite violent. Like I've seen pygmies just going after each other, like um, trying to kill each other with machetes, all kinds of things. One of my buddies saw like one pygmy slash the other guy's jaw open with a machete and then try to stab him. Like it was, they can, it can, you know, when politics go wrong in these tribes, it can get uh, very violent very quickly. So you can imagine if you've been out hunting for weeks or you went off to visit relatives in some other tribe and, you know, it was a big journey through the woods. When you're coming back, there is that danger that politics might have changed when you're away. Because, you know, everyone in the tribe is very aware of who's in or who's out with groups or if there's some sort of power struggle where someone's trying to replace the chief. So when you first come back in, and this is a situation that's been existing in human communities for, you know, as long as there's been humans. When you come back in, you're unaware of the politics. So I wonder if some of the intensity of the amount that you are sensitive to negative emotion on people's faces and really, really paying attention to the, uh, the meaning behind the words they choose is an attempt to have like a bit of a radar that might pick up if something's wrong. So you, you want to make sure that you're not stepping into a political situation where now your faction is out of favor and you weren't aware of it and suddenly you're ambushed. So mm. you know, the, the, the humans have been around long enough that that kind of thing might have been built into our brain structures. So like part of what bush mode is might also be banishment, you know, hardening in a sense might be added on top of that just in case. And my guess that there would only be a select few in the community who would be those ones that would go into bush mode. I, I can't help but wonder that if only a small percentage can access those states or at least well, the richness of much, the states that you were hunting is going on, right? Well, like with Inuit, they often go off alone to hunt for long periods of time or, or they often used to, I'm not sure if they still do, but you know, many of the other tribes would go off and, and especially if there's not that much game or the, the way to get game is more by stalking instead of like cooperative net building. So imagine in that sense, there, there might be people who are alone in the wilderness enough that they would go into bush mode. But yeah, for other ones, I mean, if your principal means of uh, gaining food is to grow crops and then occasionally set up a, a big funnel where you funnel all the wild gazelle into, into a trap, then it might be different. You know, it could be that people don't go into bush mode then. Mm. But, um, you know, I don't, don't know if we know enough about prehistory to know uh, how people were thinking. I mean, certainly mammoth hunters, I imagine they'd have to go off looking for them. Mm-hmm. No, that's you know, true. Expeditions across wilderness, or at least to scout them out and then you bring the whole tribe. Mm-hmm. And if you were off for weeks looking for the best place to, to encounter the herds and then came back, you wouldn't be aware of the, what the pol- politics of the tribe would be when you arrive. Or even sometimes when you arrive, you know, like the people you think might be your tribe could be some rival tribe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that, yeah, that heightened state of, under- of not having to relearn human interaction, but instead being super heightened into social yeah, cues is evolutionary involved for us to survive the re-entry into society. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking that maybe mm. it's a, because of the political danger of re-entering society. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe that would be the case. I mean, it, it could be wrong. It's just speculation. But mm-hmm. I was wondering why that would be put on top of the other things which are obviously useful for surviving in the wilderness. So a lot of this uh, flow state you're in is extremely useful for gathering berries, you know, finding animals, fishing correctly, all of that, and uh, being aware of predators in your environment. So it's, those things are easy to explain. But I couldn't explain as easily the, the feelings of uh, you know, seeing how 
uh, people interact with each other and being very, very attuned to that it just seems a bit strange. So mm-hmm. I was just speculating on what might cause that mm. from an evolutionary point of view. Mike, we, we do have to start wrapping up. I've got friends expecting me on the, the mountain bike trail, oh, okay. uh, not too far away. But I'm curious, I guess, is there anything we haven't covered in terms of, uh, I guess, the deeper lessons you've learned from adventure or time spent outdoors? It's hard to say. I mean, there's maybe some general things, but I'm, I'm not sure how important they are. I mean, one thing I've learned is that I'm not someone who is able to worry. You know, my, my mind is quite blank of these sort of worries or self-doubts. But as I've got older, you know, I, I, if I could talk to my younger self, I would tell, tell that person to worry even less about these. Just try to be objective and just try to do your best. And what mm-hmm. happens, happens. Yeah, because, you know, I, when I was younger, you know, I was very, you know, I really wanted to do things correctly. And, uh, you know, what's the, it was very important to me that I achieve this goal or that goal. And now that I'm older, I can see that I probably should have been easier on myself. And I think it's the case with a lot of a lot of people I knew when I was younger as well. Yeah. So, yeah. When you get older, you see that it's uh, things are not that important. I mean, you just want to be around kind people. You want to be around good friends. And uh, after a while, you got to say to yourself that you have enough. So it's important to be able to to be able to realize that you have enough. That's that's a good dose of wisdom. I I appreciate that. Well, well Mike, this has been an an absolute pleasure. I was really excited for this conversation, but I've got even more than I than I thought I would have got out of it. Where can people find find more of you after after this? I know we've got the book here, World's Most Traveled Man, which I'll put notes to. Um, yeah, I'm not it, even sure. It might be hard to find that. You might be able to find it used, or or maybe uh, maybe it's sold digitally because that that was from a while ago. I mean, I just carried on with backpacking essentially, so I'm I'm not trying to do anything. Uh, really commercial but i guess that essay that i put up the uh, gin and adam's rib i'll link that as well I posted that online yeah uh, so if someone wants to read something more on spirituality you know that's there excellent well thank you so much for your time mike mm-hmm. thanks it's been great thanks for listening to mountain whispers as I always say, there's an awful lot of really great listening content out there, so it means a lot that you chose this to the end. You'll find in the show notes here links to his website, links to his book, and also the essay that he just referenced at the end called Jin and Adam's Rib. It explores the world's religions as if it was a marketplace you're wandering through. It's, it's really cool. It's clear. Mike has approached his three-plus decades of travel with a lot of curiosity and a very open mind and heart. And so it's, it's a heady essay for sure, but there's an awful lot of wisdom packed into it. If you enjoyed this episode, please um, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, hit follow on Spotify, do all that stuff. Um, or even more importantly, share it with a friend. You can find another episode every second Thursday or Friday or so. Until then, much love. Take care.